Let me pray for us. Oh, Father, thank you for today. What a, what a worshipful day it was for me. I pray uh, it was worshipful for you. You deserve it. Uh, we love you. We thank you. We are here tonight to learn from you. And uh, your word says that eyes to see and ears to hear are your gift. And so we would ask you for an early Christmas present tonight. Uh, give us the gift uh, from your spirit for eyes to see and ears to hear your word uh, so that it can hit our heads and sink into our hearts tonight. We pray for this, please, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, Job. Let's see, I think I'm done with that. Job, unmerited suffering. I suggested to you last week that um, the book of Job, really there's not going to be somebody who says the book isn't about unmerited suffering. Um, And my take on it is simply this, and I use the illustration of a Medal of Honor. Sometimes God steps aside and calls on an ordinary saint to become his extraordinary spiritual champion on the battlefield. He uses us as his weapons against the Satan and as witnesses, it's a weapon, and as witnesses to man and angels. We looked at that from Ephesians last week, and I said, if you've never thought about that before, Selah. We are on display for the angels that they might see God's grace and how he handles men, mankind. Sometimes God steps aside and calls on an ordinary saint to become his extraordinary champion on the battlefield, to be a weapon and to be a witness. We looked at the prologue last week. Uh, The Satan has made two accusations to God. First, Job only worships you because of what he gets. That proved to be false, remember? Because Job says, I came naked from my mother's womb and I will be naked when I leave, etc. Praise the name of the Lord. In all of this, Job did not sin by blaming God. So he came through that first accusation and he proved that God was right. So he served as a weapon and he was also a witness to the people around him. And then remember the Satan said, you know, skin for skin, hurt him and he'll curse you to your face. Job only worships you because you protect his health. So unknown to Job, Hidden beyond the perception of men, beyond the heavenly curtain, God has sent Job onto the battlefield to prove men will worship him in spite of their circumstances. In spite of their circumstances. Not because of them, but in spite of them. Proving to the Satan that God is worthy of love and loyalty, neither of which the Satan has given him. 
So God calls righteous Job. There's no question in Job that Job is a righteous person. God calls righteous Job onto the battlefield. The question, will Job seek to maintain his righteousness and trust God, or will he confess, in quotes, for relief? You understand that? If he, can, if he confesses, okay, I wasn't righteous, you guys are right, I'm a sinner, maybe God will take his hand off me and I'll get relief from this. But now Job is no longer exercising integrity. He knows he's a righteous person, as righteousness was counted in that day. Job was such a righteous person, so he has to lie to try to get relief, or he can maintain his righteousness, which he is, and live in this inexplicable land of what is happening to me. Job's friends have heard about the tragedy and have come to, in quotes, comfort him. There's a lot of lessons to learn here about how not to comfort people. We'll just touch on a few at the end. But this is the prologue. This is the first two chapters that there are things going on behind the curtain that neither Job nor his friends know about. His friends show up to give counsel. As I told you last week, his friends counsel are all of these uh, forms of their counsel are grounded in the retribution principle, which means the righteous are blessed in this life while the wicked are punished. That's their theology. That's their philosophy. The righteous are blessed in this life while the wicked are punished. Uh, this is the principle behind virtually every um, religion on the face of the earth. This is the philosophy, the theology behind every form of idolatry. You, you, you appease the idol or the deity or the whoever or whatever it is, and what happens? They do good things to you, right, or for you. What happens if you cross them? Not so good things. And you'd better watch out because in this case, you don't know what will set God off. And you say, <laughs> silly Job, I'm so glad I'm not like Job. Yes, me either. You ever said to yourself, I better watch what I say, I better watch what I do because the other shoe will drop? Anyone ever muttered that under their breath? What is that? What is that? Retribution. Bill, I hear you boasting about something. Bam, other shoe's going to drop. That is the retribution principle, as is those little uh, Christmas songs that we've taught our children. I didn't teach them to mine because you're sinners and I'm not. <laughs> our country, even our country, and even you and I are steeped 
in retribution. Sing it with me. Oh, you better watch out. You better not cry. You better not pout. I'm telling you why. Santa Claus. Who does Santa Claus represent besides us? Right? It clearly represents us, the parents watching. But who else? Santa Claus equals God. He sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows when you've been bad or good. So be good for goodness sake. Because this, this old man in heaven is watching you. And what does he give you if you're good? You get something good in your stocking, right? What happens if you're bad? Lump o' coal right in the stocking. That is the retribution principle in action in our country, in your life, and in mine. You've just never known what it was. This is the context out of which you think, gosh, are you serious? This is happening Fourth, let's see, what year are we in? 2018. And let's say this was, mm, I don't know, 1800. So 3,800 years ago. This is an old, old theology. <laughs> Almost 4,000 years old. We've just found new ways to teach our kids about it. And <laughs> funny thing is, we believe it too. Better watch out. You don't know what will set... God off. So his friend's counsel is grounded in the retribution principle. Now, the retribution principle has corollaries. If you're blessed, you must be righteous. Huh. If you're suffering, you must have sinned. Have any of you ever in your whole life looked at someone who is suffering? And said, I wonder what they did. Oh, come on, you're all liars. <laughs> you have done that, and so have I. I wonder what that person did. Oh, oh shoot, well, better watch it. The other shoe's gonna drop. <laughs> all of this is retribution principle that we put on top of God. If you're blessed, you must be righteous. If you're suffering, you must have sinned. Corollary your circumstances reveal. Your heart. That is where Job's friends are coming from. Your circumstances, Job, reveal your heart. And guess what? Your circumstances are crummy. Guess what your heart looks like? Crummy. They enter into a three round debate. All of those chapters you read, I'm, look at this. Do you want to see grace? I'm not even going to ask you how many of you read your chapters. I hope you did, and I hope you and God are happy with your own accomplishment. You don't have to boast about it in here. Some of you I know are wanting to stand up and say, look at me, I got them read. No, you just take care of that with God. Some of the rest of you are very, very happy that you didn't have to raise your hand. I know you. First debate takes up chapters 3 through 14. They go back and forth, but there is round one. Round one, Job basically, I'm going to fly over this thing at 36,000 feet. Debate, round one, Job basically says, I don't understand what's happening to me. 
He's grief-stricken. Do you understand grief is a natural outgrowth consequence of those who are suffering? <laughs> grief, grief is not good. It's not fun. But there's nothing wrong with grief. It's okay to grieve. Job is grieving over what's happened to his family, to his world. Everything in Job's world has fallen apart. It is a natural and normal first response to tragedy like that. Eliphaz, in chapters 4 and 5, kind of begins to hint to Job, uh, Job, you need to confess because your circumstances reveal your heart. Your circumstances are bad. You're suffering. Therefore, your heart is bad. And Job, what you really need to do is confess. Bildad steps on the scene, kind of begins hinting, Job, you need to repent. We're looking at your circumstances here, and it's pretty clear to us. You need to repent. Zophar speaks up, Job, you need to come clean. These are great friends. This guy, right, he's sitting on the garbage dump, remember this? Scraping, I mean, what a grotesque sight, and your friends have gathered around the garbage dump while you scrape away with the pottery shard, and they say, you know, Job, the truth is you need to confess. Your life stinks right now because you've sinned. And so you might as well confess. You need to repent. You need to come clean. If I were Job, I think I might kind of come back on that. Here's the friend's conclusion. Job, you're not righteous. You're a sinner in need of repentance. Now, Eliphaz... As you go through um, all these chapters, as you go through all these chapters, uh, let's see, I don't know if you can see that yet. It's not in the light. Can you kind of see that or not? Okay. It's a little close. <laughs> You know, uh, maybe God had you sit there tonight. For... I'm just saying. Okay, Eliphaz comes at things from the perspective of experience. So whenever Eliphaz talks, you know, I've seen this and I've seen a hundred of that, and in all my years, he goes to experience. Um, let's see. Bildad comes from tradition. What does Bildad have to share? Intergenerational wisdom. You ever tried sharing that with your own children? <laughs> Son, your grandfather taught me, and I'm teaching you intergenerational wisdom. Tradition. This is how we do it, son. There's Bildad. Zophar comes from 
to intuition. You know, he has some things he says, I feel, I think, I sense these sorts of things. So each one of these fellas is arguing his point from a particular angle. And the longer you look at Job, the more you'll see how these angles are all pointing at the retribution principle. Because the retribution principle, well, son, that's just how life is. Just the way it goes. Around here, we don't say things like that because you never can tell when the other shoe is going to drop. Any of you ever said anything like that to anyone? I have. Job says, I don't understand. His friends say, Job, you're not righteous. The reason you're on the garbage dump is because you need to confess, repent, and come clean. You're a sinner in need of repentance. Job, rightly, pushes back on that. The accuser, however, what he hasn't been able to do with death and destruction, he now begins to accomplish through these ignorant but well-meaning Friends, what does the accuser said? Job will curse you to your face. What are the friends doing? Basically provoking him. <laughs> they think they're helping him. They're going to help him walk the straight and narrow again. Job, you've wandered off the path. We're here to bring you back on the path. Job knows, oh, I'm righteous. I don't need to be brought back on the path. And the accuser is saying, what I couldn't do with death and destruction in Job's family, I may be able to accomplish with his friends. And yet, though he doesn't understand, Job doesn't curse God as the Satan predicted and his wife recommended. He maintains his innocence and integrity. And though he receives no comfort from his friends and doesn't understand, he continues to cling to God in faith. That is the first round Cliff Notes version. The debate continues, 15 through 21. What was the first thing Job said? I don't understand. In round two, Job says, I'm innocent and God is unfair. Oh, wait, there's a tone that's changed in Job. He's changed from, I don't understand, which is okay, to, I'm innocent. My only conclusion in this is God is unfair. I don't deserve this. Any one of you who's ever undergone unmerited suffering, any of you ever, perhaps you just whispered it to yourself, in the darkest hours of the night, you never voiced it out loud, but you said, I don't deserve this. You know, I'm not perfect, but I don't deserve this. Anybody ever said that? Hello, Job. 
I'm innocent because you mean what Job means. I'm innocent and God is unfair if I don't deserve this. Did you know that's what you were saying? <laughs> I don't deserve this. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar crank up their rhetoric, and now they begin to insinuate. Eliphaz insinuates against Job, so he's, hey, Job, maybe you need to confess. He kind of moves from suggestions to, Job, let me tell you what I see. Let me tell you the truth of how the world works. And they ramp up their pressure on Job. Bildad jumps in. Zophar jumps in. Summarizing the friends, Job, you're not innocent. You're guilty and should remember the terrible fate of the wicked. What does Job look like to the friends? Job, you are unteachable. You are so prideful and hard-hearted in your... Mm -hmm. You can't see what we see. We're your friends. We're here to help you. What is Job doing? Digging in his heels. Now, who's right? <laughs> Job. The friends are wrong. But Job can't explain what's going on because Job lives under the retribution principle too. He just doesn't understand. I'm righteous. Why is this happening to me? The only thing I can conclude is God has become my enemy. And I don't know why, but that's what's happened. Not only do I not understand, this has gone unfair. And God is using me as a punching bag. Now Job begins to show signs of pride and self-righteousness. Scoot this back. I don't want to block the screen. He begins to show signs of pride and self-righteousness by insisting on arguing his case in court against God. What is Job doing? He's flirting with becoming God's new accuser. Who is the accuser of the brethren? The Satan. What is Job now beginning to do? Accuse God of wrongdoing. What is the Satan doing? I don't know what he's really doing. <laughs> he, his work, he's going, mission accomplished. Job's going to take over my job. He's flirting with becoming God's new accuser. And yet though he receives no comfort from his friends and doesn't understand, he continues to cling to God in faith, believing if he can just get in front of God, he can argue his case and at least get some kind of answer from God about why this is happening. You ever thought about that? 
in the midst of something, you ever thought, if I could just sit down face to face with God, I'd explain my side better to him and he would certainly (laughs) come over my way. (laughs) Nah, you all are saints. It's just me who does that. The debate now enters the final round, round three. Job started in debate cycle one, I don't understand. Cycle two, this isn't fair. Cycle three, I deserve to be acquitted. Eliphaz and Bildad come back at him hard in these last chapters. Zophar seems to have just given up. He doesn't have another speech in this cycle. Job has now got to the point where he's saying, you know, I didn't understand. I don't understand. It isn't fair. God is kind of treating me like a punching bag. And I deserve to be acquitted and relieved of this suffering. I don't deserve any of it. And God is wrong to do it to me. Job denies his friend's premise, their assertion that the wicked always suffer and that he was a deliberate sinner. What is Job doing? He's breaking away from the retribution principle, but he doesn't know what to put in its place. He doesn't have anything to put in its place. But he's he's saying, I know I'm righteous. By the standards of this day, I am a righteous person. And yet, this horrible tragedy has befallen me. You tell me it's because I'm a sinner. I'm not. God's bullying me. And I want to get in his face and tell him to stop it. Because that's all he can conclude is happening. Because he still thinks the righteous ought to be blessed and the wicked ought to be cursed. What has he experienced in his life up to this point? The righteous have been blessed. Well, now the righteous, in a sense, is being cursed. This, this makes no sense to him whatsoever, but he's, he's at a breaking point. He can't explain life anymore by the retribution principle. Do you begin to understand why Job is in the Bible? It's to teach us, it's to teach God's people theology through a guy who reaches a breaking point and says, I got big questions about this whole retribution principle. It doesn't explain everything. So Job denies his friend's premise, their assertion that the wicked always suffer and that he was a deliberate sinner. He's challenging the retribution principle as being the only way God deals with mankind. This book is so foundational to your theology. Maybe no one's ever explained to you what's going on in Job. (laughs) Probably the earliest book written, but we start with Genesis because it deals with way early things. But this book is teaching a theological principle or the... um, insufficiency of a worldwide theology of retribution. 
and that this is how God, our God, deals with mankind. This is such a great book. If you keep getting your arms around this thing. And now, Job is showing even more pride and self-righteousness. He insists that God is unjust for targeting and bullying him this way. Now, oh, i got to use my triangle again. I can leave it back there. Can you see it? Okay. Okay, they've been arguing about why. Okay, there's uh, the friends. That says Job. Friends, Job. Oh, yeah, because he's getting ready to speak. Elihu. Okay, the friends tell Job, uh, Job says, I'll read it in just a second. The friends tell Job, the reason this is happening to you is for your discipline. You're a sinner. You need to repent. You need to change directions. Job says, the reason this is happening, why is this happening, is for my destruction. God is out to destroy me. Elihu's going to step up and say, no, no, no. It is not discipline. And it's not destruction, Job. It's for your direction. It's for your direction. This is for your good. God is directing you away from something. You probably started drifting, Job, and so God is directing you back on the right path. And yet, though he receives no comfort from his friends and doesn't understand, he continues to cling to God in faith nor does he curse God as the Satan predicted and his wife recommended. Now Elihu, who's been standing, standing there watching this, can't help himself anymore, and he's going to speak up. And he basically says three things. First, Job, you say God is silent. And he, in chapter 33, argues, no, God speaks. He says, Job, you say God is unjust. In chapter 34, he argues that God is perfectly just. Then he says, finally, Job, you say God is unconcerned. He answers in chapter 35 with, no, God is sovereign. Elihu's speech boils down to this. God is just and he is sovereign. What God is doing is teaching you like a student who needs direction. He's not disciplining you, Job. 
He's not destroying you, Job. He's directing you like a master teacher directs a pupil. Here's the truth. They don't know why Job is suffering. (laughs) Did any of them hit the mark? No. None of them know. Unknown to Job and his friends, the Satan has made two accusations against God or how God deals with mankind. Job only worships you because he gets the stuff. Job only worships you because you protect his health. So God has called on Job to enter the battlefield as his spiritual champion. Key word is in italics in the first bullet. Unknown. Unknown to Job and his friends. This is what's happening in the heavenly realms. God calls Job to step out onto the battlefield. Job is demanding his day in court with God. And the audience is awaiting the outcome. If you are reading the book of Job, this is like a play. And, all, and you're at the, oh, you're wondering what's going to happen because Job is pounding his fist. I want to meet God. Well, guess what? God shows up. Amazingly, God shows up. That's the subject of the next lesson. The question in front of Job, what the audience is waiting for, is will Job renounce his integrity and make a false confession in order to gain relief? Because that's what the friends are telling him. The friends are saying, you're a sinner and you need to repent. If you'll do that, God will remove his hand and his hand of blessing will be back on you. To do that, Job has to say, I was never righteous. I was mistaken. And Job has to lie in order to try and gain relief. This is what the audience who's reading the book, they're on tiptoe now. (gasps) What's going to happen? What's the final act? Well, you'll have to come back next week, and you'll have to find out the final act in the book of Job. Let me make some observations. Observation number one, offering compassion and comfort are better than offering counsel to those who are suffering. What was the best thing Job's friends did those first seven days? (laughs) They just showed up, and they didn't say a word. They were just with him. Jesus says we are to weep with those who weep, rejoice with those who rejoice. What are we supposed to do? Just show up. And offer compassion, not counsel. Hey, Bill, you know the reason this happened? No. (laughs) Well, here's why. You were a sinner. Well, that's true, but I'm not sure. Is there a cause and effect here? Oh, I've seen it in my long experience. Tradition tells me. Intuition, Bill, tells me this is what's going on in your life. Wow. Wow. I'd much rather have somebody just sit down there and cry with me. And not just that, but ask me questions. Don't give me answers. Ask me questions. 
not, Bill, how do you feel? I feel bad. I feel bad. Hopefully you, you got enough emotional intelligence to figure out, right now I've gone through this tragedy, I feel really bad. So, but ask me questions. Offering compassion and comfort are better than offering counsel to those who are suffering. Observation two, trying to discover why the righteous suffer is futile. Why? Because we don't have the full picture. Every newscast you see with a tragedy, why did this happen? What do they think they want to know? Why? What do they really want to know? Why me? So why always leads to another why. If you can explain why this happened, then my second question is still a why. Well, why me? Where does this go? Nowhere. Because I don't deserve it. What? What? I think I just read that. I don't deserve this. So trying to discover why the righteous suffer is futile. There is a safe but insufficient answer, and that is the retribution principle. It is descriptive. The truth is, it is descriptive. God delights in prospering the righteous, and he guarantees the wicked will be punished. In fact, I think the retribution principle, in this case, the part of it that's descriptive as well is true because God does delight in prospering the righteous and he guarantees the wicked will be punished. What if the wicked don't get punished on this side? I think one of the greatest arguments for an afterlife is because God is totally, perfectly just. And if justice was not carried out in full on this side, guess where it's going to be carried out? On that side. So when people say, blah, 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 I go, you know, I think God is just. What does that mean? Have you ever sinned against somebody? Oh, I don't know, probably. Has anyone ever sinned against you? Oh, yeah, you want to see the list? What if that doesn't get taken care of on this side? Well, I don't know. I said, well, I think God is just. And I think there's an afterlife where that stuff gets taken care of. Wouldn't that make sense if God were... 100% 100% just? They've never, they've never thought about things this way. Okay, so when you try to think, how do you, how do you begin to share with people about God and, and their need and all those things, is introduce an idea of justice. We all want justice. Arr, I haven't been given justice. God does delight. It is descriptive. He does delight in prospering the righteous. And he does guarantee the wicked will be punished. But the retribution principle is not causative. It is descriptive. It is not causative. It cannot be used to demand blessing from God. And it cannot be used to deduce a person's heart. Remember what I read to you last week? Some of you were, I saw you scribbling it. The retribution principle is not causative. God deals with mankind by sovereign grace. Means, since grace is God's unmerited favor, I cannot demand it, 
I have no right to expect it and cannot become angry if he is less gracious to me today than he was yesterday or if he chooses to favor someone more highly than me. The retribution principle is not causative, though it is descriptive. Therefore, the retribution principle is insufficient to explain what we can, let alone what we can't, see. How many times do we jump to a conclusion about why a person is suffering? Truth is, from Job, we don't know the whole story and won't. The retribution principle is insufficient to explain what we can, let alone can't, see. The uncomfortable truth that the book of Job, perhaps the first book in the Bible written, the uncomfortable truth that surfaces in the book of Job is this. The righteous experience unmerited suffering. That is the uncomfortable truth that we don't talk about very much. I love these couple of quotes. Paul, I'm not sure how you say his last name, might be Tunier. We are always we are nearly always longing for an easy religion. Easy to understand and easy to follow. A religion with no mystery, no insoluble problems, no snags. A religion that would allow us to escape from our miserable human condition. A religion in which contact with God spares us all strife, all uncertainty, all suffering, and all doubt. In short, a religion without the cross. Do you long for such a religion? That is not what is described in the Bible. The Bible describes something very uncomfortable, and that is the righteous experience unmerited suffering. Observation three, there is pain involved in unmerited suffering. The pain of unmerited suffering. First, let me define a term, unmerited suffering. Persecuted, being persecuted for righteousness sake. being a victim of sinful attitudes and actions of others, engaged in circumstances beyond your control. If you're persecuted, for, for instance, you're speeding. Oh, it got very quiet on that one. You're speeding. You know it. The police know it. They catch you. Let's just say, though, somebody went past you and they happen to pull you over, right? I've seen this happen to some of you because I've been the person who passed you. 
police pulls me over, and he, you know, policeman pulls me over, and he goes on and on. Am I being persecuted for righteousness' sake? I'm speeding. I've broken the law. There's a consequence to that. I had a friend, a good friend, 10, 15 years older than me. I might have told you this story before. I've only got like three stories, so I just, I just recirculate them. Uh, this fella um, was a Christian veterinarian and in a big practice, and his boss um, loved GD this and GD that. It was just part of his day-to-day language. And one day my friend knocked on his door, went into his office, and said, oh, gosh, you know, the Bible says God will not hold guiltless those who misuse his name. I care about your soul, and I just want to plead with you to stop saying that. And his boss sat down and said, oh my gosh, you know, I, I sense in my conscience that that's what you're saying is the truth. Huh. You know, th- thanks for that. So my friend gets up, walks out. Next day, my friend walks in. The boss says, come here calls him in his office, closes the door, and says, hey, you remember that thing you told me yesterday? Yeah. Well, GD, if I'll ever do that, and not only that, you're fired. Is that being persecuted for righteousness' sake? (laughs) Yes. Unmerited suffering. Victim of sinful attitudes and actions of others. We could name heinous crimes committed against young people, older people, etc. And your brain can go wherever it wants to go with all of that because it's all true and it's all heinous and it is horrible. In a group this size, undoubtedly there are victims of sinful attitudes and actions on others' parts against you. That is unmerited suffering because those things some of those things will not leave until Jesus comes and I hate that for you but God will give you the grace and the healing there are circumstances beyond your control illness now, if, if you're a smoker, let's say you smoke, I don't know, what's a lot? Four packs a day or something? You smoke four packs a day for 40 years and you wind up with lung cancer. This is unfair. Well, you know, funny. I don't think so. But let's say you never smoked, you never smoked one cigarette in your whole entire life of any variety. Never lived with smokers, ran away from smokers whenever you saw them, and you got lung cancer. Is that something beyond your control? Yes. Yes. Unmerited suffering. It's real. There is a stress, an emotional stress, sometimes a physical stress, a spiritual stress with all of these things. Unmerited suffering brings pain. James, in chapter 1, talks about trials and hardships. In chapter 5, he talks about persecution. Question, 
Who is James writing to? Unbelievers? Oh, that's right. He's writing to the church. Huh. Why would James write that? Because it's true. There is a sickness and a stress of heart and soul in unmerited suffering. And many who have been or who are afflicted with it are weary, discouraged, and doubting. What do they need from you? Compassion, not counsel. There is a pain that goes with unmerited suffering. Fourth observation, those who trust God most don't avoid suffering, but embrace it. A believer's response, 1 Peter, yes, I'm well aware this is in the New Testament, but it's not off limits. Beginning in verse 12, dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery trials you are going through as if something strange were happening to you. Instead, be very glad, for these trials make you partners with Christ in his suffering, so that you will have the wonderful joy of seeing his glory when it is revealed to all the world. So be happy when you are insulted for being a Christian, for then the glorious spirit of God rests upon you. If you suffer, however, it must not be for murder, stealing, making trouble, or prying into other people's affairs. But it is no shame to suffer for being a Christian. Praise God for the privilege of being called by his name. For the time has come for judgment, and it must begin with God's household. And if judgment begins with us, what terrible fate awaits those who have never obeyed God's good news? And also, if the righteous are barely saved, what will happen to godless sinners? So if you are suffering in a manner that pleases God, keep on doing what is right and trust your lives to the God who created you, for he will never fail you. Who is Peter writing to? The church. What is he telling them? Unmerited suffering is real. Make sure it's unmerited. Endure it. Be glad in it, because in that way you are walking as Christ walked. Keep on doing what's right in faith and endure it. James. What does James say? I hate what James says. <laughs> Dear brothers and sisters, when trouble comes your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. <laughs> what? For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. You know, he doesn't say, uh, when your faith is tested, um, let's see, consider it an opportunity for great complaining. Consider it an opportunity for great joy. Reminds me of the Lord, who for the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame, 
sitting down at the right hand of the throne of majesty. How did the Lord approach the cross? Not how I would have. (laughs) How did the Lord approach the cross? He saw it as joy. Not the, the physical part of it. That would have been horrific. But the joy of walking where his father wanted him to walk gave him great joy. Daddy, even if it's through the cross, I will have great joy because I'm walking right smack dab in the middle of your will. And that gives me great joy. Wow. That Jesus. James chapter 5, we're to pray because we need help bearing the burden. Endure unmerited suffering with prayer resulting in worship knowing it glorifies God and grows his saint. A Navy SEAL does not start off day one in the SEAL program. What does he or she have to do first? Go through basic training, continue to do hard, hard things, continue to demonstrate that they are capable of going on, and then they get to be an elite level. What is God looking for these days? Is he looking for babies? Is he looking for children? Or is he looking for soldiers? Is he looking for Navy SEALs who say to him, yes, Daddy, send me there. I will go. Yes, Daddy, I understand. I will do it. Wow. Is that where you are tonight? I I don't know. Maybe you are. He's looking for seals, Navy seals. Even Isaiah, right? What did Isaiah say? He didn't even know what he was getting into, did he? What did Isaiah say? Here I am, Lord, send me. Are you you ready for that? He says of Paul, remember what he says of Paul? Because the rest of the disciples are like, what? What did you just do? Do you You know, hey, I don't know if you've been watching, God. Paul's not really a good guy. He's kind of been going around killing us. Remember Remember what the Lord says to him? I'll show him how much he must suffer for my name. Remember that part? That part that you skip over when you're reading? Paul knew it. Paul said, here we go. Endure with prayer, resulting in worship, knowing it glorifies God and grows his saint. Of course, the best response to suffering is our Lord. In Matthew chapter 26, Matthew 26, starting in 36, then Jesus went with them to the olive grove called Gethsemane, and he said, sit here while I go over there to pray. He took Peter and Zebedee's two sons, James and John, and he became anguished and distressed. Remember Luke tells us he's sweating drops of blood. He told them, my soul is crushed with grief 
to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. He went on a little farther and bowed with his face to the ground, praying, My father, if it's possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me. Yet, I want your will to be done, not mine. Then he returned to the disciples and found them asleep. He said to Peter, Couldn't you watch with me for even one hour? Keep watch and pray so that you will not give in to temptation. For the spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Jesus left them a second time and prayed, My father, if this cup cannot be taken away unless I drink it, your will be done. When he returned to them, he found them sleeping, for they couldn't keep their eyes open. So he went to pray a third time, saying the same things again. Then he came back to the disciples and said, Go ahead and sleep. Have your rest. But look, the time has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Up! Let's be going. Look, my betrayer is here. Jesus is in Gethsemane. He draws near to, doesn't withdraw from his father in prayer. Some of you who have experienced great grief know sometimes it can be hard to pray in those situations. That's why you need brothers and sisters to pray with you and pray for you because it can be exceedingly difficult. You want to withdraw from everything, including your Heavenly Father. Jesus draws near in prayer. He doesn't withdraw from his Father. He surrenders again to his Father's will, trusting that he is good and knows best. He rises up and goes forth toward the future in faith and courage as a weapon against the Satan and a witness to men and angels alike. The greatest example of the book of Job is, of course, our Lord Jesus, who knew what he was facing and walked into it anyway because it gave him great joy to be right in the center of his father's will. What if your path lies on that same road? I don't know what that means, but what if? What comfort do you have in that day? Look up in prayer. Look down because you will see some footprints that have already walked this road ahead of you. And he knows what it's like. And he walked it alone. He is our great high priest. He knows what we need in every circumstance and situation. And when you're tempted to say, no one knows, I'm alone. It's not true. Look at his footprints. They've walked ahead of yours. And he's right up there. And you just keep walking to him. Because he's there. Waiting for you. Interesting quote about Christopher Columbus. When life is difficult, it's easy to give up. But giving up is the worst thing we can do. 
A professor of history said if Columbus had turned back, nobody would have blamed him, but nobody would have remembered him either. If you want to be memorable, sometimes you have to be miserable. The greatest lessons I've received in my medium-sized life are the men that God has put into my life who not only taught me what it's like to live for Christ, but what it's like to die. What is it like to die with Christ? I've learned a tremendous amount from those men. And some of you have too. There are some people that God has given us to teach us how to die. And I owe those men a great debt. I remember them because they taught me so much about what it's like to be on that path and have joy. I want to be memorable. I don't want anything bad to happen to me. Don't get me wrong. But if something's going to happen, I want to be memorable. I want to be a weapon. And I want to be a witness. And I know you do too. Just like Job. Just like Jesus. Next week, you have an easy job. (laughs) Job 38 to 42. Finish the book of Job. God shows up and has some thoughts of his own to share with Job about the situation. And we'll look at those next week. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for Job. Uh, Way back 4,000 years ago, thank you for Job. I thank you more for the Lord Jesus, who is the par excellence example of Job. Though Job questioned, Jesus never did. And in all things, he did it perfectly. And it gave him great joy to walk a path none of us could have walked. Thank you for what he did and how he has blessed us and given us his righteousness. Not a righteousness we could purchase or earn, but his righteousness has been credited to our account because you loved us. Thank you. I pray this would be a great week as we try again in the empowerment of your Holy Spirit uh, to walk as Old Testament Job and as New Testament Jesus. Help us to walk in their footsteps, we pray, please, in Jesus' name. Amen.